welcome to the Product Science Podcast, where we're helping startup founders and product leaders build high-growth products, teams, and companies through real conversations with people who have tried it and aren't afraid to share lessons learned from their failures along the way. I'm your host, Holly Hester-Riley, founder and CEO of H2R Product Science. So this week on the Product Science Podcast, I'm sharing a conversation with Ken Norton. Before becoming a full-time executive coach to product leaders, Ken spent more than 14 years at Google, where he led product initiatives for Google Docs, Google Calendar, Google Mobile Maps, and GV, formerly Google Ventures. These products today are used by more than 3 billion people worldwide. Welcome, Ken. Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to have you. We've been talking about this for a long time. I'm excited we're finally together. I know. It's taken a little while to make it happen, but here we are. So I always like to begin by hearing a bit about people's journey. So how did you first move your way into product? Well, I guess our journey, we have to go back a number of years now. I had the, I guess, good fortune of graduating about two months after the Mosaic browser was released to the world from college. And the misfortune of it being a recession mm-hmm. and the combination of those two events, me latching on to the promise of the web, not being able to find a job in my chosen profession, which at the time was politics and pre-law and ultimately a path to law school, brought me to San Francisco to work in the sort of burgeoning web 1.0 days. And at the time when I moved out to San Francisco, there was I think really three companies that I thought of as being preeminent web brands that companies that I would actually want to work for was Wired, CNET, and Organic Online, which was a kind of a consultancy shop. And I ended up working for CNET as a software engineer, sort of worked my way up the engineering ladder during the sort of dot-com explosion and eventually collapse. And slowly sort of found myself realizing that I don't think I was really made out to be a programmer, mm-hmm. realizing that Although I loved software, I don't think I was particularly savvy or brilliant programmer. And wanting to get a little bit closer to where the decisions were made, the marketing, the business, all the sort of non-technology stuff, yet loving working with engineers, and eventually sort of found myself in the middle of all those things before I maybe even really appreciated that it was called product management or even what product management was, sort of found myself doing this job. And then you know, realized it was the perfect fit for what I wanted, what I think my skills were. And, you know, before I knew it, I was being called a product manager, even if I don't ever remember the point where I sort of affirmatively said, I'm going to be a product manager. It was just sort of one day I woke up and I was like, I guess this is what we call this. Yep. And, you know, spent a long career working in product, you know, from a bunch of different companies, probably I would say about, you know, 2005 or so realized that there wasn't a lot out there about what product management even was or sort of what makes a good product manager. And so was one of the first to sort of blog about it, try to write, sort of capture what my sense of what product management really meant. And then that sort of, you know, being early to sort of writing and publishing about product management naturally led to an audience. And so sort of that sort of built on itself and, you know, had the good fortune of being able to give back in a lot of ways to the, the PM community ever since and be a part of the conversation and, you know, sort of watch everything that's happened with product over the last 15, 20 years, and eventually moving into full-time coaching where I work with product leaders. Yeah. So many things have evolved over the past 15 to 20 years in product. What was it like, I guess, when you first got started in tech, even if you weren't yet thinking of yourself as a product manager, what did building software look like then? 
at CNET, we had a lot of very experienced software developers and software leaders, which was very unusual for web 1.0 companies that were sort of cobbled together by hackers. Our engineering leaders all came from Bell Labs and Bellcore. So we, we had a good sort of institutional understanding of how to build good software at scale, how to think about software, how to honor the craft of engineering. And so I was lucky to sort of have learned from people that really understood deeply how to build software at scale. It was one of the advantages we had at that time. That said, it was a very sort of waterfall process that came from that world. I mean, that was sort of the way you built software. And so I think we were at the time trying to figure out how do you strike a balance between moving fast and innovating and improvising and recognizing that what we're trying to do had never been done before, but at the same time, honor sort of sound engineering principles around scalability and maintainability and quality. And, and it was a really sort of fun time because I think the team had a sort of a perspective that we were going to figure it out, that we weren't going to fall on one side or the other. So it wasn't like I was fighting against people that were saying this is the only way to build software, nor were we thinking we should just move fast and break things. And so I got to come up sort of learning sound engineering principles and sort of how to build software at scale. I think that sort of served me because I had an opportunity to sort of learn it the right way. But that said, it was very much a write a requirements document, figure it out what it's going to look like, do wireframes, mockups, do write a technical design document. So it's like the iterative loop between what we think we're going to build and then when we find out whether it's going to work for users or not was, you know, months, sometimes years in some cases. Yeah. And so the sort of tightening of that loop of learning, prototyping, customer discovery, try it, see if it works, if it works, invest in it further, if it doesn't work, change it, iterate, is really something that we were only figuring out for the first time. And I look back sometimes at some of the things we built and we're like, well, we spent a year building that. Then we put it out to try to find out whether it was going to work or not. Yeah. Imagine how much faster we would have learned if we didn't wait till after we built it to figure out whether it was going to work and whether users resonated with it. What if we had sort of moved that up front? So I think that's really been the big shift that I've seen is just that the feedback loop between what you're learning from your users and your customers and how that's feeding back into what the team chooses to build very, very different than it was you know, at that time. Yeah. One thing that I've found that I'm curious if you've seen is as more new product managers or entry-level product managers come on the scene, there are more people who haven't lived through the older ways of doing it. And so sometimes they have questions or you know challenge why we do things so light on documentation or so iteratively now. And I'm curious if you ever come across that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, the probably the biggest change that I've seen is people actually want to do this job now. They want to get into it. They aspire to do it. Even, you know, I've had people reach out to me or still in high school. And they're like, I read your stuff. I want to be a product manager. What should I be doing? How should I prepare? Wow. And, you know, we were, at least my generation of PMs, we were kind of cast out into the wilderness and found our way into PM, not because we intended to do there. And in fact, in some cases, we were sort of seen as pretty second rate. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember in my early days, it was sort of, there was engineering and then there was business. Yeah. And if you were, you know, and probably you sort of in business, why would you want to work on business? So it wasn't really something that at least a lot of people aspired to be. So that's changed, certainly. So there's now lots and lots of people that want to be product managers, which is great. The challenge is the only way to really learn how to be a product manager is to do the job. Yeah. And it's hard to learn to do the job if you can't get the job in the first place. And so there's a little bit, I think, focus on the wrong things as sort of a desire for shortcuts, quick entries, tools, tips, techniques, you know, frameworks that are going to help you find shortcuts to the job. 
But anybody who's done the job knows that that stuff is sort of secondary to what really matters and what makes the, the job hard. And so it's a little bit of, maybe I, I sound a little bit like a curmudgeonly music fan that's complaining that his favorite band has gotten too popular or something. But <laughs> I think it's a little bit of a mixed blessing that there is so much discussion, desire, opportunity, interest in product because it has created this sort of echo chamber of, in my mind, people fundamentally talking about the wrong things. And I don't think it's necessarily serving us or the community. Yeah, I can agree with that. Especially over the last 10 years, I feel like there's been an explosion in the amount of content that's out there for product people. But it's so hard for people who are new to product to figure out which of the content is any good. Mm -hmm. Like, how do they figure that out? It's It's got to be really hard. Yeah. You don't know until you've done the job again, right? It's sort of like filmmaking, right? It's just like, what goes into making an incredible film? Well, there's so much. There's story, there's casting, there's set design, there's there's the script, like there's such a craft to filmmaking. And if you ask any like famous filmmaker, they probably couldn't even necessarily pin down what really matters and how it all fits together. It is as if you go to like the filmmaking community and you find that all they talk about is like which lens to use and like how to set your aperture mm -hmm. when you're interviewing to get the job to work on the film. And then you're like, well wait, but that doesn't even connect to what all the filmmakers will tell you is important. And it's like, well, that's sort of what's happening in the product community. I get it, right? There's a lot of demand. There's a lot of people who want to get into it, who want to leg up, who want to learn how to do the job, are clamoring for tricks, tools, techniques, shortcuts in the door. There's a lot of people who are now interested in selling something to those people, naturally, because there are a lot of smart product people following their users, following the market opportunity, selling certifications, tools, frameworks, all this kind of stuff. Yes. But- it just feels like we lost the plot a little bit. For those of us who've been doing the job for a long time, when we think about what makes the job hard, where you struggled, where you failed, where you fell short, what could have been different, it's not because you had the wrong framework for prioritizing a backlog. Like it was just, it was all the other stuff. Right. You know, again, this sort of comes across as a little bit curmudgeonly. I don't mean that, but you zoom back and it just feels like we're just talking about all the wrong things. So, what should we be talking about? I mean, I argue that the hard parts of product that really matter are what I call the art, which is more about the people side of things. Yeah. As I reflect, and you know, and I work with product leaders in my coaching practice, so I get to see this firsthand, how to lead and inspire teams, how to set a vision, how to tell a story, how to evangelize, how to hire, how to deal with difficult people, how to inspire, how to lead without authority how to be creative, how to sort of connect with how your values fit into it. Like that's the stuff where when I look at where I struggled and where I grew as a product manager, where ultimately sort of the rubber hits the road. Mm -hmm. Now it's squishy. It's hard to turn any of that into a, you know, five-step, you know, tool that you can take with you. Right. And it's not unique to product. I mean, it's sort of anybody would tell you that all that stuff, communication skills, storytelling, well, that matters in sort of any part of life, any part of business. And that's true. But I'd love to see more conversation about that, particularly for people that are coming into product who are getting started, for them to both sort of honor and understand the importance of that, but then to start to build some of those skills, sort of lean into some of that stuff that we've often called soft skills earlier in their career, not once they've sort of advanced to a place where they're finding out that's holding them back. Yeah. Do you have any stories from your time at Google or anywhere else where you feel like you really sort of, you know, overcame some of those challenges to inspire a team and lead without authority? Yeah. I mean, a big challenge for me was 
trying to figure out how to balance my, what I think I have sort of a natural interest in connecting with other people and being able to work with other people and sort of understand them and to sort of be able to be decisive, to sort of make decisions, to kind of fundamentally drive momentum and lead. To me, there was a tension there, right? Because if you walk in and you try to exert authority as a product manager, you're probably not going to get very far because you know you're not the boss, right? So no one's going to listen to you because you're the boss and they sort of are forced to. They're going to be like, who are you to tell me what to do? By the same token, if you sort of lean into the sort of servant leadership type mentality, putting other people first, being collaborative, you will probably connect with other people, create a lot of sense of trust and safety and people will want to work with you, but it'll be very hard to sort of drive decisions, to be decisive, to make the call when you need to make the call. Yep. A lot, I struggle with a lot of trying to strike that balance. And, I, and I've watched product managers fail and fall out of the profession for going too hard on one side or the other. I mean, the number of product people I saw walk into Google and sort of come in on day one, think they're going to order engineers around. Mm-hmm. And a year later, they're, they're out in the pavement with their thumb out looking for a new job. Yep. And then a lot of people who are like, great to work with, very collaborative, teams love them, but then felt like they couldn't execute, make decisions, make the tough calls, manage up, push for decisions. So that's sort of one example is I've had to sort of find that balance between creative sense of leadership, inspiring others, bringing out the best in them, recognizing you're not leading from authority, Mm -hmm. but also being able to sort of put the hammer down and be decisive and make the tough call or pound the table if you need to, to, to drive results. Most jobs, you're sort of learning that by nature of a formal line manager type role. Right. right. You learn how to do that because now everyone's looking at you and going, you're my boss. So you find the right balance and you're either too harsh of a boss and they think you're a jerk or you're too weak of a boss and they ask you to push hard. But for PMs, like we're sort of stepping into this environment where we're being asked to do this without really much formal authority to draw upon. And I think a lot of people struggle with that. You know, that's been a theme for my career. And obviously with a lot of folks I work with in my coaching practice, I don't see a lot of stuff written about that. Yeah. You know, there's there's not a lot of tools and frameworks for figuring that out. And it's because it's hard. Yeah. It's a little squishy. It could be hard to write useful content around that and make sure that it's actually helping people. Yeah. I think the way you learn it is by watching a great product leader. Mm-hmm. If you have the good fortune to be starting your career as a PM, to be able to watch and learn how someone else more experienced has navigated that, either because they're your manager or your mentor, or even just a fellow PM that you get to see in action who's navigated that path. It really is the type of job that's best taught through an apprenticeship model. Yes. Hey, look, there's a lot of professions out there where the only way to learn the job is to do the job. Journeyman, electrician. You kind of have to learn, you know, but they're set up to support that through apprenticeships and you sort of, you get hired as an apprentice, you're taught by somebody on the job, you learn. There's very few of those opportunities out there for product managers. I mean, there's the you know, Google APM program, Facebook RPM program. So a handful of them, but a very, very tiny sliver of them actually exist. Most people are sort of thrown, you know, into the deep end in the startup and expected to learn the job, or they find their way in through an adjacent role in a in a bigger company. But I think that's really the bottom line here is it's a job you can only sort of learn the nuances of by doing it. But yet, how do you get the job if you haven't done it? Yeah. No, it's the age old question I think people ask about all the time and there aren't enough programs out there. What do you tell people? Like, do you have people come to you who don't have a mentor that they can work with in their company? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, it's very common. This is part of why coaching can be powerful. I think mentorship is really important as well, because I think a lot of people just sort of don't know what they don't know. I don't even know what questions to ask. I don't know what I don't know. It's very common. People will say to me, I don't, I don't even know like where my blind spots are yet because I don't even know what the spots are. And so my suggestion, particularly earlier in your career, is prioritize finding an environment where you will get that learning, that mentorship by being able to see a great leader in action. So if you're looking for that first PM job and you have an offer to go join your buddy's Y Combinator startup as employee number five, the first product leader, or if you have a choice to go to a bigger, more experienced tech company that has a great brand where you can learn from other product managers, I would absolutely prefer that, you know, recommend that you go the, the big company route. Mm-hmm. Even if you're convinced that this company is going to be the next Facebook or whatever, you're just not going to learn. There's not going to be anyone from you to learn from. You're not even going to know what good looks like. Yeah. Yes, of course you could absolutely stumble into it. Silicon Valley is littered with people who've stumbled into figuring out what great looked like through sort of force of will and just hard work and luck. But if you really want to learn the craft of product manager, you got to be able to see it in action. You got to be able to see great, strong product leaders show you what the job entails, watch them navigate some of these difficult problems, hear from them how they make tough decisions, how they inspire others, how they tell stories, how they drive outcomes, all that kind of stuff. And so I think people often try to push for ownership and title and seniority without recognizing that the best way to learn a job is to apprentice. This makes me wonder, did you have a leader like that that you learned from? I did eventually. (laughs) (laughs) This may be part of what makes me so opinionated about this. There were strong product founders that I worked for, founder CEOs who, who I had the great opportunity to learn from and to be led by, you know, everyone from Halsey Miner, who is the founder and CEO of CNET back in the day, Joe Krause, who is our founder at Jotspot, one of the founders of Excite, mm-hmm. Jeff Weiner, who I worked for at Yahoo, who eventually became the, the CEO and now executive chairman of LinkedIn, mm-hmm. Larry and Sergey, David Philo. Like I had the opportunity to learn from a lot of really strong sort of product CEOs, product-oriented CEOs, but I didn't have a really good product leader as a manager until later in my career. Mm-hmm. And that's part of why I sort of learn the power of that because I saw just how many mistakes I'd made and how many things that I'd sort of clumsed my way through that this person was able to sort of bring out the best in me and sort of inspire me. And I think importantly, help me figure out what my authentic style is going to be. Because mm-hmm. you sort of oftentimes find yourself ping-ponging between the way other people are telling you to lead, which may be right for them or right for that environment, but isn't right for you. And so, yeah, I wish that Day one, when I sort of, hey, I guess you're a product manager now. Oh, and by the way, here's this amazing person that you're going to learn from, who's going to mentor you, who's going to challenge you, who's going to coach you. I didn't have that. And I, I certainly wish I had. Yeah, that's interesting. It makes me think back to, I think I first got that about five years in. The first five years were all trial and error. And then got a, a job where I actually had a VP above me that had things to teach me. Yeah. And, you know, that is when things started to really take off. That's when the career started to really change. Yeah. Because then you're like, oh, wait, like this is a force multiplier for me now. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It really made a big impact. So I've read, you know, a good deal of your writing and you touched on what you call the art of product management. Can you tell us a little more about that? You know, this is sort of my attempt to try to frame some of the sort of more people side of the job that I find is underappreciated, under-discussed, but that ultimately matters more. You know, these are things like collaboration, communication, creativity, you know, sort of 
understanding who you are in this equation, how to sort of endure and survive this job by connecting to what matters to you, your own sense of purpose, all that kind of stuff. And this is the soft parts of the job, but again, the ones that I think really matter so much more, right? Mm -hmm. If you think the science of it is the sort of the actual execution, the, you know, actual doing user studies, like prioritizing backlog, figuring out to build, working with engineers, framework, you know, like all that kind of stuff. We get a lot of discussion around that. So the art of product management to me is really sort of more the human skills around it that help you succeed as a leader, help you grow and become the type of leader that ultimately is going to be able to drive great outcomes and build winning products. So yeah, I wrote a piece uh, within the last few weeks called The Art of Product Management to try to put a little bit of structure around that because mm-hmm. I've sort of referenced it a bunch of times. I'm like, well, the art matters more than the science. And then fair enough, people have sort of called me on it and they're like, okay, well, what is the art? You don't get to just keep calling it squishy, but not define it. Mm-hmm. So I wrote a piece to try to put a little bit more structure on what it might be. So for people that are you know, early in their career or later in their career who are like, how do I grow? How do I learn? What is ultimately going to the recipe for success in this job, have a sense of to what to think about and focus on. So if you were hiring product managers and you needed, you know, frontline PMs and you were presented with no candidates that had both, what would you go for? How do you decide if you're sort of facing, you know, someone who's got the experience working with engineers and running user tests and things like that, but isn't very good at the art versus someone who's good at the art, but maybe hasn't really done the more technical side? That's a hard question to answer. I could argue that's unfair. It's a false choice, but like, I think, I think it's <laughs> yeah. a good frame. I think this is actually a great question. I think it would depend on which parts are missing, mm-hmm. right? So if I had a deep sense that this person just has no empathy, like isn't, creative or curious, like then I think that's a sort of a hard thing to teach. Speaking about the art, if I felt like they're deeply empathetic, they're very curious, they're very creative, but need to sort of understand how to communicate, how to act in a way that brings out the best in the team without being, you know, directive. I think you can learn those skills for sure. Yeah. I think you have to want to learn those skills. So that would be the other thing I would look for is does this person really fundamentally care about bringing out the best in a team, helping other people collaborate, understanding different perspectives, empathizing with end users, with customers, or are they really sort of just seeing that as a means to an end to to winning or being the boss or whatever. So motivation would sort of have to come into play. I think the science stuff is absolutely teachable because that's all what the sort of apprenticeship model is. And that's why there's so much focus on it. People are trying to learn just like, what do I need to do? What tools, what skills, how do I make decisions day to day? How do I manage my time? How do I get engineers to work with me and estimate, you know, that stuff is absolutely teachable. I would say that there's definitely some parts that they would either sort of have to be there or not. Curiosity, empathy, just a sense of fundamental philosophy that you really care about what it is you're doing and want to build great products and have impact on the world and bring out the best in other people. Like I think that stuff is foundational motivation that's there or not. But yeah, I think you can certainly teach those skills to people who are eager and want to learn them. Yeah, I would agree. And one of the reasons I asked the question is because I was thinking to some of the startup founders that I've been coaching recently. And, Hmm. you know, it's, it's a little bit different because I don't get to pick, right? Like it's whoever comes to me, but I definitely have some startup founders that have come to me that have the art side, but need me to teach them the other side. And I think that they make pretty good founders. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is just, you know, it is a little bit of like good humans make good product leaders. Yes. <laughs> sort of like, you know, I mean, it doesn't mean bad humans can't build great products. They can, but good humans ultimately, I think in the long run, build lasting, 
enduring enterprises and companies and teams and products that really sort of fundamentally matter. And so a lot of what I often am inquisiting in, in these sort of conversations or, you know, back when I was doing interviews is really just like, what are your motivations, right? Mm -hmm. What draws you to this craft? Is it because you think there's power and it's a stair step toward being a CEO and starting your own company and that's really all you care about and you just want to sort of scoop up the learnings so that you can then get to the next level? Or do you just really care about the craft of building great products and are inspired by solving really interesting problems and bringing something to the world that makes a slight dent in the pain a user is enduring or a problem that somebody's suffering and really care and want to bring out the best in people and you know create environments where people really want to do their best work. That to me is what you can oftentimes tease apart from these conversations. And then whether they come in, you know, stronger on the art or stronger on the science, like there's a sort of an eagerness and a, a motivation there to learn for the right reasons that I think probably matters most. Yeah. One of the things that made me think about too is how I perceive the ratio of people who fall into those two camps of like being after product management for the power mm. versus being after it for the impact. I perceive that to be something that's changed over the past 15 years as the discipline has gotten more popular. I feel like it's more common than it used to be to come across people who are using it as a stepping stone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm going my own curmudgeonly route there. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's because if you've done the job, you don't, it's not a source of power, Yeah. <laughs> but it looks like it from the outside. Yeah, I think, you know, and this is something I've opined about as well and written about is I think a lot of people really do see product management as a necessary stepping stone to something else. Mm -hmm. And that's totally fine, right? I mean, I, I know plenty of incredible CEOs who started on the product path who saw it really as their path to general management or becoming a product leader. And, and that's great, but it, it's totally fine for it to be an end in and of itself, right? I mean, for so many people like me, you had to have another career even before you got in the product. Mm -hmm. It's like some people, you started in marketing or you started in customer success, you muscled your way and you finally got that product job. You're an engineer for years. And then now you're supposed to like do it for a couple of years and step on to something else. Why can't this be the job, right? This is a great place to be. This is a, a very fulfilling career. And so I think there is a little bit of a sense that unless you're sort of marching forward onto something bigger, then maybe you're falling short, you stalled out in your career. And I work with a lot of clients that are in this place, right? Midlife have been product leaders for a long time. They're like directors or VPs at big companies or startups. And they're like, what if this is what I want to do? Mm -hmm. What if this is it? Why do all my peers keep asking me when I'm going to be a CEO or when I'm going to go become a VC or a general manager? Like, what if this is what I want to do? Is there something wrong with that? But I think that the appeal of product, the innate attraction of it as a exciting, shiny place to be has also created this assumption that, you know, unless you're using it to do something more important, like be a founder or CEO, then you've sort of failed. And I think that's really disappointing and, and completely misleading because hopefully you're drawn to this because you love the work, not because it's just a stepping stone to something else. Yeah. Are most of your clients in that camp or do you also have clients who are using it as a stepping stone? Both. Yeah, I have both. I mean, most of my clients are chief product officer, VP product at startups, venture backed companies, or, you know, director and above at Fang, Google, Facebook, you know, Stripe, companies like that. Mm -hmm. For a lot of them, you know, they are certainly seeing this as a path to the next thing. I have a lot of clients who are 
I'm three to five years out from being a CEO. And so I want to sort of understand what that path looks like. Mm-hmm. I have others who are trying to figure that out. That's a big factor of our coaching is like, what does the future really hold for me? What do I love? What's my purpose? Like, <laughs> what do I even think about this? And then I have others who are just like, this is what I want to do. Yeah, That's really exciting for people to be like, what do I want to do when I grow up? I want to do this but more. Yeah. I want to keep doing this. And so I love that sort of mix. And, you know, for some, it's really very much a, what is it going to take to be CEO ready in three years? For others, it's like, how do I just keep getting better at this? How do I bring out the best in other people? Like, what does the next level look like for me when I know that it is this on a bigger scale, more impactful, more confident, more short? So yeah, I would say it sort of runs the gamut from people that see this as preparing them for something else. Now, I think I would say all of them that I work with are in product because they fundamentally love it, not because they're taking sort of a cynical approach to using it for something else. But, you know, I think it's perfectly fine to decide this is what you want to do. It's also perfectly to decide you're going to go start a company or be a CEO yourself. Yeah. One of the things you mentioned there was about the impact. And I was thinking we don't end up with a lot of guests on here who have, you know, worked on products that have had the amount of impact that many of the Google products you've worked on have had because gosh, it's huge. So I'm curious, like, what do you think is unique about working you know on high impact products at google hmm. oh there's a long probably a long discussion to be had there i think understanding what it takes to build systems at a massive scale is really exciting right it's just sort of this sense of we're going to do this and we're going to get you know hundreds of thousands of queries per second like just all the things that you have to prepare for think about an edge case at a startup where you may be like yeah but only one percent of users get that error and you're like oh, that's 100 million people <laughs> it's sort of like, mm-hmm. you know, it, it just the scale of it is astonishing. And the scale of the infrastructure and the systems required to do what we were doing would blow your mind. I mean, just the number of times where I was just shocked and stunned to discover that we had done something with something was operating at a scale that was operating was amazing. You know, I think you can easily lure yourself into feeling like you're winning and succeeding, even, you know, despite yourself. You know, some of my favorite memories were when I was working on mobile maps for Android. And this was during the years when Android itself was exploding through the roof, right? And it would be like 500 million monthly users. And then it's like 750 million monthly. And it's just like, it's up and to the right. And it's crazy. And you could step back and you can kind of pat yourself on the back and you're like, look at our growth. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, I don't know how much, we're just riding a rocket ship. Yeah. So how do we actually measure success with a product like mobile maps when you know all of the utilization is just coming from everybody getting Android phones? Right. How do we sort of tease out what we're contributing to that, what we're not contributing to that? How do you understand whether what you're doing is making a difference or not, or if it's just sort of coming for free. Now, it's a great problem to have, don't get me wrong, but it does make it a little bit hard to do what you might do in some cases where sort of identify some core metrics that you feel like are helping you understand your growth and your contribution. Those metrics may just sort of be happening for free. You know, the ability to do quantitative tests on a large scale where you could try something with 0.1% of users for a week and learn you know, statistically significant things is an amazing, amazing capability that every time I've ever been in a startup or a startup I missed, I was just like, oh yeah, yeah, we could do that. We can't do that here. Yeah. So there's, there's certainly some benefits, but the other thing that I think you learn at Google is 
the unwieldiness of what you sort of call the business infrastructure that has to be navigated, mm-hmm. right? That you just don't appreciate until you've operated that scale. You know, the like, oh, you can't do that in Holland. And mm-hmm. the reason you can't do that in Holland is because of this weird, obscure EU thing. Yeah. So how are you going to make sure this doesn't work in Holland? You know, you have to deal with that kind of stuff. Or the deep privacy infrastructure, legal infrastructure, all that kind of stuff that so critically important to operating at scale that can sometimes feel like bureaucracy to you at Google, but is obviously there for like a super, super important reason because the consequences of getting it wrong are so critical. But you just learn that that kind of stuff really, really matters. And that's, I think, one of the things that people who have operated that scale who go to a startup bring is this an understanding of like, you can't shortchange that stuff. We can't think about that later. Yeah. <laughs> like we got to think about that now because there's all sorts of examples that we've navigated at Google where we thought about it too late and we sort of had to deal with the consequences. And so you know, that's that's one of the things that's really amazing. You know, the best part of it is probably like everyone you meet knows the product you're working on. Yep. <laughs> Pretty fun, right? It's kind of nice to be like, what do you do? Well, I work on Gmail. You know, I work on, oh, I know Gmail. Of course you do, right? So there's a sense that you get that feedback in your real life that like the products you're making actually are being used and people care about and couldn't live without. I remember... You know, I was one of the earliest PMs on Google Docs. That was my first project. And I remember my son got to elementary school and this was years and years ago. And the teacher shared a Google Doc with us. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh my God, I was just overwhelmed with joy because I was like, this is the first time I'd sort of seen the product in the wild. And one of the dreams was like, this would be amazing in K through 12 school system. And and just sort of like seeing that product be used in that way, in that environment mm-hmm. was this just incredible feedback loop for me that like what we'd been doing actually made a difference. So yeah, that's part of what you really, really gain by working with the world's greatest engineers. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just this sense of there is no problem that is not solvable. And I mean, great engineers and that the world's greatest engineers, but they're also the sort of most curious, creative engineers. Yep. There's no, no, we can't do that there. Mm-hmm. And so that combination of having people be excited to try to find ways to solve problems that have never been solved before, and then you solve it and be like, we're the first in the world to ever do that. It's just, it's a really special place. Yeah, that sounds really awesome. So how did you decide to make the transition from Google to not Google? So you're like, why'd you leave? Yeah, <laughs> um, that's a great question. Well, you know, I've been there 14 years, which was about 11 to 12 years longer than I thought I was going to be there. Mm-hmm. I came in through an acquisition. It was a company called JotSpot. There were only 25 of us. By the way, more than half are still at the company now, 14 years later. Wow. Probably one of the most successful Google acquisitions ever in terms of retention. Mm-hmm. All those folks are VPs, directors, like very senior folks at Google now. Even the ones who left, most of them were there 10 or more years you know, for me, it was, I turned 50 last year mm-hmm. and I had this thing in my mind for a long time, which was, I'm not going to be still doing this when I'm 50. <laughs> I could just like, it was in the back of my mind. It was just like, I love this job, but like, I don't want to keep doing this when I'm 50. For whatever reason, that was like a, a milestone. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the pandemic happened. Yeah. And there's a very interesting thing about the pandemic. One of many, you know, I've obviously a lot of tragic things, but what an interesting thing about the pandemic is it forced me to look at my job through a screen and not through all the like trappings of being at Google and the cafes and just like being around all the people. And when I sort of stepped back and looked at it through a little browser screen on my computer, I realized I was ready for something else. Mm -hmm. I had long considered 
becoming a full-time coach. Mm -hmm. I did a lot of coaching in my days at GV. I'd obviously learned and done coaching as a manager. Yeah. Really missed that being a big part of my job. Mm -hmm. And so there was sort of a, a lot of sort of contemplation of what might I do next. And long story short, I ended up leaving Google to go to another company, decided that that wasn't right for me. I, I didn't really want to be in another company. I wanted to do this coaching thing and then ended up sort of hanging up my shingle and saying, you know, I'm open for business as a coach. Benefited a lot from the fact that in 2021, there was no one who was skeptical of being coached over Zoom. Yes. In 2019, I would say I would have, many of my clients would have said, yeah, I'd love to work with a coach, but it sort of has to be in person. You know, I can't imagine being over Zoom. And I think that would have been pretty limiting just in terms of the number of people you can really truly serve. Even here in Silicon Valley in person, it's just difficult to make that work um, versus to be able to coach people anywhere over Zoom, you know, to work with numbers of them a day without having to get in a car and drive somewhere for them to come to me or for us to be rescheduling. And so, you know, as terrible as the pandemic was for the world, certainly for all of us, I think an opportunity was created to try this for real and to do it in a way that I think could serve more people than I thought I could serve. And it would not have happened had it not been all those circumstances kind of coming together and forcing me to be like, okay, I think it's time for something new. I miss Google terribly. I get to cheat by coaching a lot of people at Google. And so mm -hmm. I get to sort of stay close to the company and get to work with a lot of amazing Googlers and obviously enjoy that part of it. But it's not a day that goes by that I don't I don't miss that place. Yeah. It sounds like an incredible place. I think that it'd be, yeah, just fortunate for people to get a chance to work there. I hear it can also be fairly dependent upon, you know, what team you ended up being on and things like that. Sure. A lot of big companies, that's the case. Yeah. And I think probably that would have always been the case. It might matter more now because the company, as it's scaled, it's probably harder to move around like you, you might have been before. But yeah, I think that's, you know, there are really strong teams at Google. There are weaker teams. There are more political organizations that frankly feel more like Oracle than Google these days, not naming names. There are others that feel very Googly, that feel the same way they felt, you know, in 2006 when I joined. So mm -hmm. it's an incredible place to start your career as a product manager too. I think, you know, anybody that has the opportunity earlier in their career, you know, either through the APM program or just as a, a place to spend a couple of years learning the craft of product because you really are, you know, all these things we talked about that you're going to learn sort of how to operate at scale, but also that to be able to learn from just incredible people to just start to piece together how do different people navigate these different things and how do people approach the art? What can I learn from them? Who does it this way? And I actually, I actually won't, don't want to do it that way because I don't like that. It's not authentic to me. It's a really great place to learn it. Yeah. You've said a couple of times now, this idea of authentic. So I'm curious, like, what does it mean to you to be authentic as a product leader? Yeah, that's a great question. To me, authenticity comes from values and to sort of be connected to your values, understand what they are, and to sort of be living your values. And that's something that I, years ago, I would have not even understood what that meant. But there were so many times when I sort of reflect back on my career where I was frustrated or unhappy, it was often because there was something that mattered to me. It was a value that mattered to me that I wasn't honoring it in my life or the environment wasn't honoring it, right? Or I was being asked to lead in a way that didn't feel like it honored my values, right? You know, I have a very self-deprecating humility is a value of mine. I like to put the team first. 
bring the donuts. This is like a whole been my sort of way of being. And, you know, for a long time, I was sort of told or, or got the impression that that just, you can't lead that way. Mm. You got to be Steve Jobs or you got to be a CEO. You got to be command and control. You got to tell people what to do. You got to make them fear you. And I picked up a lot of mixed messages around that. And not that I tried to be that way, but the mixed messages I got were, I guess I can't be a leader because that's not the way I want to lead. Right. And so authenticity in that case for me was really sort of becoming more centered on like, hey, what are my values? Like humility, empathy, compassion, teamwork, humanism. Okay. What does it look like to really lean into those? What is it like to find out how to be decisive and to drive change and to make tough decisions through the lens of those values, not sort of having to set them aside to be something you're not? That took working with my own coach, my own sense of understanding who I want to be getting more emotional intelligence, something I'd never had early on, and just sort of becoming more centered. And you know, this is the sort of who are you part of all this. And it's a lot of what I work on with my clients is, you know, who are you? Like, how are you going to be who you are? And how are you going to find a way to express who you are and navigate the world in a way that feels right for you? And so when I talk about authenticity, that's a lot of what that is. And I've watched people struggle with that their whole career, trying to be who they are and sort of fully express themselves and honor what matters to them in a way that is compatible with sort of navigating the world. Yeah, that's beautiful. I feel that it really resonates for me as well. Like just thinking through, again, going back to that first place where I felt like I really had a mentor was also the first place where I felt like I was more authentically myself. Mm -hmm. Early in the career, I think it can be scary to be your authentic self if you don't see models that look like that around. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think even more to that point, you know, literally look like you, right? I mean, for folks that from underrepresented backgrounds, women, people of color. Like if you don't see people who look like you, that you can sort of feel included, you can feel empowered, you can feel like someone like me can be a leader. You are sort of forced to act as if you're something you're not. And, you know, look, as great as companies like Google are and as inspiring and creative and non-hierarchical, you know, there is a certain archetype for what is a leader that Western society and, you know, certainly Silicon Valley sort of honors and puts forward. And so if in any way you don't feel like you look like that or act like that, you know, that it sort of sets you up even more for feeling like in order to succeed, I have to be someone I'm, I'm not or be someone that just doesn't feel right for me. And so I think that's why I love working with leaders because the more different types of people and styles of leadership there are, you can watch someone lead in a particular way and be really successful and watch someone else lead in a very different way and see them be successful and sort of find ways to to appreciate both styles of it. I think the more variety there is in leadership, the more we start to move away from this cookie cutter sense of you got to be this sort of certain way, you got to look a certain way, you got to act a certain way, or else you're just not capable of being a leader. Absolutely. It's reminding me of a book I read a while back called Dream Teams by Shane Snow, where he was sort of trying to bring some quantitative evidence to show these different kinds of leadership and what kind of effectiveness they have. And I think that there's a lot of people that look at the command and control leader as being really strong and, mm -hmm. and leading really strong teams. But there's actually a lot of evidence out there that you know the inclusive leader gets farther. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's 
a framework is sort of the sort of reactive tendencies versus creative leadership. I think it's a good framework for thinking about that. But yeah, I mean, the evidence shows that, you know, over time, what creates the most vibrant creative teams that deliver the best results are the type of leaders that sort of bring out the best in people around them, not the sort of top-down command and control. And, you know, we've been trying to move away from that since, I mean, the 50s and the 60s is when sort of early management science was like, hey, maybe that isn't the way. Yeah. But, you know, those are the faces that we see on TV. Those are the sort of names that we we worship. And it's easy to think that that's the only way to lead. You know, this sort of goes back to our earlier point. Until you've been exposed to a different way and you've seen it and you're like, get to work for a great leader who can show you that the path is as colorful as you want it to be. Yeah, that's awesome. Do you have any final thoughts or things that you want to share with our listeners? Yeah, I think, you know, there's this, maybe this sort of undertone of the job is both harder than you expect and easier than you think. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is that there are no ways out. There's not one way to do it. There's not a tool or tip, a framework, a a checklist that's going to be the shortcut on how to do it. And that makes the job very intimidating because I know you want that. But the part that makes it easier than you think is you're going to get to figure it out on your own by drawing on these parts of humanity, parts of, you know, sort of being a curious, creative, independent, thoughtful person, that if you bring those to the table, you'll figure it out. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to flop. You're going to fail. You're going to have disastrous outcomes at times. But if you lean into that, you know, what I was calling the art, you'll find a path forward. And so I think this is sort of weird dichotomy between it's harder than you think, but actually navigating it might be easier than you expect that I think is really interesting and and fun about product management. Yeah. Awesome. So where can people find you if they want to follow you? Yeah. So bringthedonuts.com is my website where you can find everything I've ever written about product management going way back. Newsletter that I'll occasionally send out. Don't expect a high frequency (laughs) of, of newsletter, but I will promise a high quality bar, even if it's a low frequency. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I'm on Twitter at Kenneth N. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. The Product Science Podcast is brought to you by H2R Product Science. We teach startup founders and product leaders how to use the product science method to discover the strongest product opportunities and lay the foundations for high growth products, teams, and businesses. Learn more at h2rproductscience.com. Enjoying this episode? Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's episode. I also encourage you to visit us at productsciencepodcast.com to sign up for more information and resources from me and our guests. If you like the show, a rating and review would be greatly appreciated. Thank you. Thank you.